Hello, and welcome back to the While We're Waiting, Hope After Child Loss podcast. I'm Jill Sullivan, your host and one of the co-founders of the While We're Waiting ministry. This is a podcast of stories, stories of devastating loss and grief and heartbreak and struggle, and stories of hope and healing and faith and, yes, even joy. Underlying every conversation is the hope we have in Jesus Christ, which makes it possible to not just survive the loss of a child, but to live well while we're waiting to see them again in heaven one day. You can learn more about our ministry and the free bereaved parent retreats we host by visiting our website at www.whilewe'rewaiting.org. Welcome to episode number 122. I'm pleased today to introduce you to my friend and a member of our While We're Waiting family, Kim Allison. Kim is the author of a book titled Desperate Trust and is the mother of nine, five on the ground, as she says, and four in heaven. Three of those children went to heaven as infants, and our conversation in this episode will be about them. She describes the cycles of guilt and anger she went through and how God eventually brought her to a place of submission. I believe you'll be encouraged by what she has to share. Hi, Kim. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hi, Jill. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited for our listeners to meet you because you have such a remarkable story to share. So first, just take a few minutes to tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us where you're from and what life is like for you there. Okay, well, I live in the Muskogee, Oklahoma area and Oki from Muskogee and been here all my life. In my former life, I was a dental hygienist. And I say before children, that's what it was very briefly, very briefly. And uh, we were privileged to raise six children, my husband and I. We homeschooled from cradle to, you know, leaving home. And uh, let's see, we raised goats and sold the goat milk. We raised chickens and I made homemade bread and, you know, that kind of thing where you grind the wheat and wow. make, we didn't buy bread from the store. No. So, uh, but that was, that was a few years ago. And now I have one child still at home. I have seven cows, two chickens and three grandkids. And that is the new <laughs> life. Uh, I like yeah. to write. I love to write and minister in prayer to people. And uh, I've always enjoyed neuroscience. I spent so much time looking at brain studies, I think I could be a neuroscientist by now, but I didn't, you know, didn't go to school to do that. But that's just my, my fun hobby there. Wow. Neuroscience is a fun hobby. That's a new one. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that before. (laughs) Right, right. Just fascinating. fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. All right. Thank you for that. Um, One thing you didn't mention is that you are an author and you've written a book called Desperate Trust. Um, I love the title of that book. And when you read the book, you can see why it's called Desperate Trust. Um, You share the birth stories of of your babies. I would love for you to talk about the little ones that you have in heaven. I know uh, there was an issue with a short umbilical cord with a couple of your babies, although, and so it just caused some complicated deliveries. That was something I had never heard of before. So talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, I had never heard of it either. So what got us into midwife uh, practices and birthing is when I was pregnant with the first one, I found this book called The Christian's Guide to 
pregnancy and childbirth or childbirth and delivery, something like that. And it mentioned midwives. And I thought that went out with the pharaohs in Egypt. <laughs> I had never, right. Right, I didn't know about that. And so, wow, that really appealed to me with their natural practices. And, and I just started reading and doing the research. And I thought, ah, this is what we want to do. And I found a birthing clinic with a doctor on site, you know, and I had all the pros there for a midwife delivery. Um, but his cord, my first baby, his cord was so short that he couldn't clear the birth canal. It was like he was tethered. And I guess that's another mm. name for that tethered baby. Yeah. Um, and so I would push about a, you know, he'd go about an inch and he'd go backwards an inch and go, it was like on a bungee cord. Oh, and wow. yeah, so finally it was down to the wire. The midwife said, okay, five minutes and we're going to have to get that baby out. And we did some contortionist gymnastics and scissor tricks. And so finally he was born just blue and limp, like a Mm. little limp dish rag. And he was in ICU, but he rallied and seemed fine, you know, and she told us it would, that was a fluke that will never happen again. But, but it did like every time, every time until the fourth one. And my husband and I, we talked to the midwife and by this time we were having them at home and said, how long should the cord be? And she said, twice as long as the baby. So all through that pregnancy, we prayed for a cord twice as long as the baby. And so he was the first one that had a long cord and it was wrapped around his neck twice. So it was like, we can't win. (laughs) we, We just started saying, okay, Lord, you know, your will be done. You know how to do this better than we do. So, um, right. Anyway, that was that was something that plagued us with mm-hmm. all of our pregnancies. Yeah, yeah. So after your fifth baby, you and your husband kind of decided that you were done, um, that that baby was going to be your last one. Is that right? Uh, yeah, we were thinking that, and people were telling us that, that people that had no, you know, previous input into our family size were coming up to my husband and saying, you know, that's enough. Like, what if something happened to your wife? Mm. What if something happened to Kim? And, and I was kind of upset about that. I thought, well, something had happened to me when I get in the car to go to the grocery store, but I'm not going to stop going to the grocery store. And they were just alarmist. I thought, you know, like what, what's the, why are you so upset? But so many people were saying that. And and we really felt content, I think, with just those, you know, this fifth one that would be born. And um, But I said, well, we don't have to worry about it yet. We'll just wait, you know, until I'm back on my cycle and then we'll think about it. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And so we just waited and to think about it and then sure. found out we were expecting again and um, didn't ever start back on my cycle. Just kept going. And so then we laughed about it. We were like, well, I guess we're not done yet. Right. We're going to have another one. So. Mm -hmm. And that was Benjamin, right? Yes. Yeah. Tell us, tell us what happened with Benjamin. Okay. So um, always people would ask me, are you afraid to have your babies at home? And I would say, if I was afraid, I wouldn't do it. If there was any fear, I would do something else. Well, with this sixth pregnancy, I was nervous. I was uneasy. And I asked my husband about it and he said, well, talk to the midwife. And so I talked to her about it and she said, oh, you're no worse of a risk now than you ever have been. So 
they didn't understand my concern. And so I, I just thought, is this fear from the enemy or is it from, is it a caution from mm-hmm. the Lord? And yeah. so I just kept praying about it and was just uh, uneasy. And, and at one point I had kind of a vision. I think it, while I was praying, I saw two ambulances mm. and I got a, a thought in my head that one of us wouldn't make it. There were mm. obviously two ambulances for two people and one doesn't make it. And, and I just thought, now, where did that come from? Was that my wild imagination? Was it from the Lord? It was surely not, you know, it's, I think it's the enemy trying to make me fearful. And um, so I was praying about it all the time. And finally, the Lord told me, I heard this in my heart that if he was asking me to do something, then he would be responsible for what happened with it. And it wouldn't be my responsibility as long as I was under authority if I was going with what he was telling me to do. And just because the Lord asks you to do something does not mean that it's going to be easy. Mm. And it doesn't mean the outcome is going to be what we would expect or want. So that was, uh, at the time, I didn't think much more about it. I just thought, okay, we're on, you know, we're going to continue with this. And um, anyway, when I went into labor, I had a placental abruption, which I had never heard of that either until I had one. And it's where the placenta tears away from the uterus. And so there's a giant like wound, so to speak. And so, uh, and there's not enough clotting factors in the blood to stop that big of a surface wound. And so there's generally hemorrhaging and you know, it's a very small percentage of survival for either the mother or the baby. Mm-hmm. And um, this happened at home and it was um, kind of complicated because someone, everyone thought someone else had called an ambulance and it hadn't been called. Oh. And yeah, so, and then my mom was here and this was before 911 was implemented in our system. We're kind of out of town. And so we, everyone was trying, not we, not me, but they were all trying to find the number to the ambulance. And my mom didn't have her glasses on. She couldn't read the phone book. And so she wound up leaving, driving to the neighbors, getting them to call the ambulance, coming back. And um, when the ambulance got here, they couldn't get in the front door because it was sticking. It just happened to be that we had to go around and use a different door. And they... Wow couldn't get the attention of the ladies that were here, the midwife and my mom and my aunt were here and by knocking on the door. So they just left and, Oh no. Yes. And drove back off to the highway and we're sitting in our church parking lot trying to figure out what to do, I guess, or maybe they went to the wrong house. They couldn't figure it out. And our pastor saw the ambulance and came over to ask if he could help. And they said, well, we can't get, uh, we're supposed to go to the Allison house, but we can't get in the door, and it's supposed to be trouble with a birth, and he said, I'll get you in, and he was a former police officer, mm. and I guess, you know, knew all about getting in stuck doors, sure. uh-huh. and so he came back with them, and then there were sheriff deputies and paramedics and police all in the house, and 
And sure enough, one, I went in one ambulance and the baby went in the other. And mm-hmm. my husband had come home in the meantime because he was at work waiting to see, you know, what would happen or if he was needed or if, if I was going into labor that day. You know, it was not a for sure thing. But um, yeah. so he had come home and he rode with the baby because we had a plan. I had always told him if anything happens with a baby situation, you go with the baby because I can take care of myself. And so he knew his orders were to stay with the baby. So he went in the ambulance with with Benjamin, which we hadn't named him yet. We have a problem naming babies. It always takes us a long time, days after they're born. So it was just the baby for a long time. Right. And then I was in another ambulance with the midwife. They actually wanted her to go along because um, they said they needed her. And she did her midwife things like hold my legs up, which helped um, because she she couldn't even get a heartbeat. There was no heart tone when I was here and no breathing for like 45 minutes. And so once in the ambulance or maybe even before that, I started uh, responding. And I personally have amnesia of the whole birthing experience. And I only know what I've been told. So I'm repeating what what I was told was this. Yeah. And that on the way to the hospital, she, the midwife said to me, you had a beautiful baby boy. And I said, who did? I did. And she thought, oh, you know, she was just praying that the outcome would be better than this. And so she just thought, if we can just get to the hospital, everything will be okay. And so um, we got there and the doctor could not stop my bleeding. And it was clear that the baby needed more help. So they put him on a life flight to Tulsa, which was, it's an hour drive from here. And my husband was still still hanging with that baby. He said, I am riding on that helicopter. I am going with the baby. And he did. And the helicopter, the pilot told my husband, well, this is a good hospital. My baby was in this NICU and it's your baby will be in good hands. And so he was hopeful, but he left me behind yeah. and they kept trying to pump in more blood and the doctor told us later that they gave us gave me 12 units of blood and six units of plasma and still couldn't stop the bleeding so he thought well we'll go do a hysterectomy that's the only thing that can be done and so I was prepped for surgery and taken down the hall to the surgery room but on the way down the hall the nurse told us later that my tongue started turning pink because it had been white and Mm -hmm. like no blood in my entire body. And um, she said she kept pinching my earlobe to see if it would blanch. And uh, so finally, you know, she could tell that there was more color, more blood in the body. It would blanch. And so um, after reassessing the situation, the doctor decided not to do a hysterectomy. Mm. And yeah, and just uh, sent me back down the hall. And we had friends waiting in the waiting room, all praying, of course. And and they said they saw me go past one direction by the windows and come back by and just waved at them all as I went by the windows like I was some parade float or something. But uh-huh. 
Anyway, so I was there in that hospital for five days while uh, Benjamin was in the Tulsa hospital. Mm -hmm. But um, while my husband was there, just right away they did some tests and they came out and told him we have not detected any brain waves whatsoever. And they said, we, he's not going to make it. Mm. And at that same moment, my friend called him from the Muskogee hospital. And this was backing up a few steps. And she told him that the doctor said he didn't think that I was going to make it. And so here he was wondering which way to go. And he said, all he could do was fall to his knees and just pray. And he said, I asked God for two things, for my wife and for my baby. Mm-hmm. And uh, we kept, he, they, everybody that knew this, knew the situation except for me, because no one wanted to tell me the baby's condition, because they were afraid I would just give up, I guess. And who knows, I might have. But um, so... I realized no one wants to answer me when I ask. Mm -hmm. I ask, how's the baby doing? And they just evade the question and it comes back a different topic. And and so I thought, okay, nobody wants to talk about it. That's fine. I'll just get out of here and I will go stay with the baby in the, you know, intensive care. I've had friends that did that. They had babies there. They would wait as long as needed and then they would come home. You know, it might be a week or two or a month. Or more, but they came home, and I thought that's what I'll do. I'll just get out of this hospital, and so I made my plan, my escape plan, and and they told me so many things. Well, you can't leave until you're sleeping. I wasn't sleeping, and I thought, okay, uh, you know, let's do that. And they, you can't leave till this or that. And I just wanted whatever it takes. You know, I'm getting out of here. And so finally, the doctor came in to release me. And I asked him, I said, what happened? Because nobody would tell me. And he got so upset. It was like all of the emotions he had had up to that moment came just bursting out. And he said, you nearly died. You're, you know, I, this was just he was all upset because it was a midwife delivery. And he thought mm-hmm. that was horrible. And and so he just really got upset and he said it didn't look good for the baby. And so when he left, all I could think was, well, this is all my fault. Mm, if yeah. if he dies, then it's my fault. But I couldn't even say those words because it was so horrible. And my parents came in the room and and I was like, this is all my fault. I said, if he dies and I couldn't say it, but I just would point at myself. And of course they were, no, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And, and my husband came in he's trying to tell me it's, you know, it's not my fault. I'll take the blame. It's, it's fine. And, and, but he said, here's the deal. He said, we're going to go. The, the doctors have found no brain activity at all in the baby. And they are recommending we cease heroic measures, turn off the machines. And he said, you're going to go see the baby today. You're going to hold him, (laughs) rock him. You're going to pray for a miracle. And I'm taking the car seat and Mm -hmm. the diapers. Mm -hmm. And he's going to go home. 
today. He's either coming home with us or he's going home with Jesus. But remember, we want God's will no matter what. And I, for some, you know, it was almost, I, I liken it to a parakeet in a cage that is, that you throw a blanket over the cage and it just gets really quiet and it just calms down. And I felt like that. I felt like God just put this blanket over me of peace that just said, okay, just okay. And I don't even understand it now, you know, how that happened. But, and there's a lot more that to the whole experience that's really amazing to me. And I, Whenever someone would ask what happened, I would tell them it would take two hours. And so I thought, I'm going to write this down. And I wrote the book so that I could, I pretty much just hand them out. And, you know, they're like my tract or something. And it just tells the story and um, takes about the same amount of time to read. Takes about two hours. It took two hours to tell Mm -hmm. it. But also I wrote it down because I wanted later, years later, I wanted my kids to know what kind of a God their mother served. Mm-hmm. Yes. And at this point, I honestly don't think any of my kids have read this book. And they're older now. They're, you know, 30s and 20s. And um, and it's just um, maybe too heavy. I don't know. But yeah. um, I don't think they've read it. No. And yeah, But it's there for them when they're ready. Right, right. All right, so you dealt with a lot of guilt, um, like you described, after the loss of Benjamin. So how did that impact your faith? Oh, you know, all throughout, I think, I was trying to figure this out myself. Like, how did I get to the point where I could trust God, even though all of this happened? What? How did that happen? And I realized that we, as a family, from the time— my oldest was just five years old. We were homeschooling with a Bible curriculum that was like a very deep Bible study. And it was just woven throughout the every subject and meditating on Scripture, memorizing a verse every day and, and the deep truths of Scripture. And what we had just been studying was what is death. When is the point of death? Is it when the heart stops? Is it when the the brain waves stop? Is it when you stop breathing? And the answer is none of those. Death is when the spirit leaves the body. And I, with baby um, Benjamin, he was on life support, basically, a heart and lung machine, uh, for all I know. It was something that was keeping him breathing and we went to the hospital and there was so many people in there. Like the news had spread. There was, I have a big family and I think they were all there and this wasn't what I wanted. You know, I just right. wanted me and the baby, the dad, maybe the kids and, and, but we couldn't ever, you know, just nothing really goes ideally and picture right. perfect. But um, when I first saw him and I had been told you know, all along, I just thought it was going to be okay until this last minute. And I walked into the NICU and was escorted to his little bassinet. I knew the second that I saw him, his spirit was gone. Mm. And it was just an empty shell. I could see that. And I thought, why did they, 
lie to me? Why did they act like he was still here? Um, but this machine was keeping his heart going, his breathing. And, and, and so there was going to come a point when someone was going to say that this had to be turned off now. Yeah. But God had prepared me with this Bible study about death and uh, about how big God was. That was another part of it was like, you know, his greatness. And I had prayed, God, show us how big you are. And here we were, um, like myself, uh, as it turns out, God had carried me right past the door of death. And just it wasn't time. It was not my time or I would be gone. So my family and my my dad explained it to me. He said, Kim, we had seen you live when we were told that it, you probably wouldn't. It didn't look good. And we saw God do a miracle and bring you out of that. So we were still banking on a miracle with mm. this baby. And, and yeah. it wasn't like they lied to me on purpose or, you know, I felt really betrayed about that. And, but it was, it was hope. They were just still hoping. And I hadn't been, I just felt like I woke up to this. Like I didn't yeah. have, didn't have all those five days to be right. processing it, working it through my brain and thinking, coming to the right conclusions. Yeah. You had no context. Right. Right. And mm-hmm. so I just saw this baby that's gone and his spirit was gone. And so with that in mind, I, of course, held him and rocked him. But I have a very vague memory of that. I just just really don't have a good memory of that. But um, I kept thinking, how is this going to end? It's not going to be me. I'm not going to say, turn off the machine. How, how are you going to do this? Who's going to say? And everyone in the room was passing him around. Or, you know, not passing around. He had to stay plugged in. But right. mm-hmm. taking turns. And even the other children had been brought up um, to hold him and see him. And all of a sudden, the nurse said, the decision has been made. She said, with the the cords have been dislodged or the wires, whatever needed to be connected, had been disconnected just by taking turns holding him. Yeah. And she said, um, the decision has been made. And, and it was like, God, in his mercy... Did that for us. Yeah. yeah. So nobody would have to say, you know, it would just, there was just one little mercy. And mm-hmm. I just see so many little mercies all throughout. And the question would always come up like, if God would do these little things and answer these little prayers, why didn't he do the big thing? Yeah. You know, and, and that I even, you know, that trails through a lot of experiences in my life. Like, well, sure. why, why didn't he stop that from happening? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but God has a plan and he's bigger than me and I don't know it and I'm not God. And sometimes that's it. That's the only answer I have. Yeah. There's, there's people that have helped me so much in my Christian walk that I've read their biographies and the things they went through and the worst things they go through, the more it helps me. And with them as well, I would think, wow, God answered so many little prayers for them throughout this horrible experience. Mm-hmm. Why, why didn't he just take away that horrible experience? Why did they have to go through that? But I never would have read their story. I wouldn't have known who they were and they wouldn't have 
impacted so many, many people if they hadn't, if they hadn't. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I, like you, I'm just inspired too when I read biographies of people that have endured so much suffering. And, you know, you think about the generations before us, how many of them lost children um, mm-hmm, before mm-hmm. antibiotics and, yeah. you know, babies lost in childbirth and, and so many things. And, you know, they walk through all those difficult, hard things. And, you know, it's it's inspirational. It's encouraging to read people's stories like that and how God carried them through. But yeah, I understand that. You know, you think, okay, well, you answered all these little prayers. Why didn't he answer the big prayer? Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's God's sovereignty. And that's something we just kind of have to, I mean, that's what faith is all about. We just right. have to rest in that. Right. So after Benjamin went to heaven, you discovered that you were in a new club. And that is the Club of Grieving Parents. Yes. <laughs> Talk about that a little bit. Well, often people, I think, well, I took all five of my kids everywhere I went, like to the grocery store and to out to eat. And, and so people would ask about that and how many children do you have? And I would always think, do I start this two-hour story here <laughs> in the right. grocery store? But it would always lead to that. It, you know, well, we have five on the ground and one in heaven at that time. And, and so then it would always connect. It was as if there is a, a, a brokenness almost, or a, a level, a new level of trust or faith or love or something. I don't know that comes from that kind of experience that attracts to a similar spirit, I think. And it's yeah. easy. You, you do connect with, it's almost like a radar where you can find that other person in the crowd that has also lost a child and they can relate to you on a deeper level than anybody else because they've, they've been through it. They know. So it was a club. I thought I didn't want to join. I didn't want to be a part of this club, but, but there I was. And there is, I used to pray. I was always an intense person, I guess, but I would always pray, Lord, either use me or take me home. Mm. And my mother said, please stop praying that. That's enough. God's used you enough already. But I just didn't want, I wanted my life to count for eternity. And, you know, I would think, well, maybe this is part of it. And just the connection to other people who have been hurt so deeply by losing a child and um, just to share what the things that God had shown us, shown me through that time. And it, it, that was like, you know, that was the club that just kind of materialized everywhere I turned. There was someone else that could relate. Mm-hmm. I think until we ourselves lose the child, our, we don't, we are not aware, at least I wasn't, of how many other people have lost children. Right. And then once it happens to you, your eyes are open and you realize that we are everywhere. Right. And we do form a very special club, a club that no one would want to join, but that there's so much comfort being with other bereaved parents, that's for sure. Right. Yeah. Uh, your sister was pregnant at the same time that you were, and she gave birth to a healthy baby girl just as you guys were placing Benjamin's headstone at the cemetery. How did you deal with that? Okay, so... I knew she was coming home from the hospital 
on this particular day. And I was so excited. I told the kids, we're going to go over to your aunt's house. We're going to be there. We're going to have this big welcome home party. And it's, I just was going to kind of envelop that and just kind of, I, I had, you know, I thought it would be healing to all of us really. But that morning we got a call from the monument company yeah, and they said, we have your monument ready for the cemetery. We need you to meet us out there to show us where to put it. And I thought I was planning to meet my sister and her new baby. Mm. And I, instead I'm going to the cemetery, just, you know, okay. Okay. So I went out there and, you know, you wait and you, stay and and I was leaving the cemetery <clears throat> and thinking and the Lord just spoke to my heart and said, Your sister has her baby. You have yours. Mm. And I have plans for her and I have plans for you. And this this is your plan here. This is your baby. This cemetery is part of your plan and part of my plans for your life. And you know, he was kind of like bringing me out of my little dreamy world yeah. um, and saying, and, and it's not fair. It's it's not fair. Life isn't fair. You know, she gets a new baby and I get a cemetery and a headstone. And But God, as we've all heard, God is not fair because fairness gives everyone the same thing, whether they need it or deserve it or could handle it. But God is not fair in that manner. He's just, and he yeah. gives he gives out what we do need or deserve or can use, and you know, not fairness, not not even, not equal all around. But so it was, it was like a wake up call. It was kind of like you know, that's that's not your baby. Don't be thinking, don't be mm-hmm. thinking that mm-hmm. that's hers. So, yeah. yeah, I asked that question because. You know, my story is not infant loss, but I would imagine as a mother who has lost an infant, it would be so hard to see other pregnant moms and other newborn babies and your sister or your best friend or somebody else has their baby. And um, that's why I wanted to ask you that question, knowing what you went through with your sister. And um, I appreciate your answer and how God spoke to you so tenderly about that. So five years later, now you're 40 years old, and you notice the calendar. Um, Talk about what was going on. Yeah, just one morning I realized, huh, I'm a few weeks late on this calendar. And I told my husband, I said, hey, I just wonder, you know, I'm late. And he says, no, don't. He said, you're just getting old. Those things... (laughs) Those things happen to women when they get old, <laughs> when they're right. your age. And I thought 40 is old, but right. Um, so I tried a little home pregnancy test for the first time ever all these years. And my husband could not believe the test. He didn't believe it because he had been diagnosed with diabetes right after Benjamin's passing. Actually, it was a few years later, but, and it was, like late onset type one is kind of what we were suggested to us. And so he had insulin shots twice a day and was um, in a lot of pain with neuropathy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he, you know, his socks hurt 
the wind hurt, everything hurt his skin. And so he would just barely make it to work and back and just go to bed. And Mm. he had told me we needed to wait two years after Benjamin passed to even think about having another one. He was trying to, you know, postpone, I think, and just put me off as long as possible. But sure. Here we were two years out, and he was down with diabetes. He had been hospitalized with it and uh, was just having a terrible time. And so there I show up all all chirpy and said, hey, it's been two years. And and he could barely move. <laughs> yeah. He just rolled his eyes and said, oh, you've got to be kidding. And And so we assumed, and it appeared as though that, door was shut for any more children. And so I had been keeping these little charts and temperature charts and trying to do the natural family planning thing. And, and I realized I had never done that before either. And that my, it was like four tenths of a degree is the difference between not ovulating and ovulating. And I thought my life dangles on four tenths of a degree. I mean, it was like serious stuff and holding your breath for two years. And, and so anyway, at that time with the diabetes and with his condition, it was, I got to throw the charts away. I was really relieved and it was like, God is protecting us really from, you know, having another terrible situation like we did. Mm, And so I just, you know, we just floated on that for some more years there, I guess four more years. And, and then here we are expecting, but we were excited, uh, kind of (laughs) with, with trepidation, you know? Um, and I was like, how are we going to tell anybody? I didn't think it would be well received and it wasn't. Um, mm-hmm. And so I told all the kids, let's just wait. Don't tell anybody yet. So we all had a secret. And we were going to wait till the 4th of July to tell anyone. And I was going to be about four months along or a little more. And But I was really small and just wore loose clothes and nobody could tell. And so we let the kids call the relatives. And they would call and say, guess what? We're going to have another baby. And on speakerphone, we could hear like nothing on the other end, <laughs> silence and just really cautious answers. And no, you could tell no one was excited. Yeah. But yeah, but my husband was really he covered he he helped me all of us stay um, up, stay buoyed up in that. Like he just said, it's going to be another, this is going to be the next Billy Graham. This baby is going to be the next Abraham Lincoln. This baby will be the next, you know, Einstein. He didn't right. know yeah. what it would be, but it was going to be a miracle. He just knew that and uh, something really big. And we decided to name him Isaac uh, because Isaac means laughter mm-hmm. and at some, there was a crossover point when we told people outside the family, they would laugh and I would laugh because like, really, (laughs) you're kidding. And so, so we just got a lot of laughter from that. And we said, we'll just name him Isaac because that means laughter. And it kind of went with Abraham and Sarah. We kind of felt like, you know, we were fitting in that category there. So everybody was, you know, planning a shower at church and, Then one day I realized the baby was not moving. Mm. And so I waited all day and I had all these other children. So life was busy and I didn't have time to notice a lot. But um, I called the 
um, doctor's office and they said, drink a quart of ice water. That should get things, get the baby moving. And it didn't. So I went in to the office and I sat in the parking lot and I just prayed. I was like, um, Lord, if you'll let this baby live, I will. I'll. And I couldn't think of anything to offer. I mean, I was out of poker chips. I was, mm. I'll give my body to you. Well, no, I've already done that. I'll quit my job. No, I did that. I'll homeschool my children. No, I'll go anywhere. Well, God already knew that I was willing to go anywhere. And yeah. I, I thought, what can I offer to, you know, to bargain with God? You know, that was not the right thing to do, but I had nothing to bargain with. And there was nothing to offer God at all. Finally, I just said, my baby, that's all I have. Mm. Yeah. And I said, it's yours. And I said, all my dreams, my life. And it seemed like there was always another level to surrender to. When I thought I had already done that, I thought I had surrendered everything years before. But it would it would come back. And it, it was the question again, the same question. And you can sing that song, I Surrender All. But doing it is a different, you know, it's a totally different matter. It's, yeah. it's big. But so I said, you know, I had to do that in the parking lot before I went in. And then the nurse um, tried so hard to find a heartbeat. And finally, she just said, I don't know. And I threw my shirt over my head and just started crying. But they were like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. We'll give you a, you can go get an ultrasound and you never know. Sometimes this and sometimes that. And it's a, and I thought, okay, okay. You know, I just knew already. And, but we did the ultrasound and, and it was that we handed one more baby to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You said you had originally decided you were going to name this baby Isaac. Uh, you changed your mind at that point. What did you name him? Jeremiah, because it was no more laughter, and we decided that would not be appropriate. And so Jeremiah means the weeping prophet, or that's what he was regarded as, the weeping prophet. And yeah. so that was that was the name now. It, it changed. And um, yeah. Yeah. After Benjamin went to heaven, we talked about how you dealt with a lot of guilt. After Jeremiah, you dealt with a lot of anger. How did you work through that? Okay, yes. I had never felt anger at God before. I just didn't. But now with this one, I was like, I didn't ask for this baby. I didn't. We weren't praying for another pregnancy. Right. We were content. And so why would you do that? Why would you? It was almost like he had given us this little seed of faith, you know, this little hope and a pregnancy and then jerk the rug out from under us. And I was, and I thought, you know, I even, I was drinking carrot juice. I was going to a nutritionist. I was getting my sleep and doing all the right things on my end. Yeah. And, you know, what, what is this all about? And I went to a, well, she came to me, this older lady that worked at the funeral home, she 
came to the house and just listened to me dump on her for two hours. I have a thing about two hours. I think I ran out of breath at two hours and I quit talking. But um, <laughs> And she said, guilt and anger are flip sides of the same coin because it's all a desire to blame someone. There has to be someone to blame for this. It can't just be random. It can't just be chance. And so with guilt, you're blaming yourself. And with anger, you're blaming someone else. It could be God or the doctor or the drunk driver or whatever your situation yeah. is. Mm-hmm. But um, so they're both, you know, they're two sides of the of the blame coin. And I thought, okay, so what am I supposed to do then? And when it all comes down to it, well, Number one, all the grief groups and folders and pamphlets say anger is just a natural course. It's a natural section you go through in grieving. But I thought, well, I don't want to be just normal. I want to be this super saint with a cape on my back that sails through and doesn't hit those bad spots. You know, I'm not going to be angry. But it was like, I I had to deal with it. I had to examine it and figure out, you know, what am I going to do with this anger? And now I have a better method now, but at the time I had to convince myself that God's mercy allows us to live every day. And if it weren't for his mercy, none of us would be alive. It's only by his mercy that we're not condemned. I think the scripture says only by his mercy. And and so every day that we live is a mercy and it's his his goodness that keeps any of us alive and that we're all in the process of death and man is born into trouble and God never promised us, you know, a life without death. In fact, death is promised us. Yes. And it, it's one thing that, you know, it's appointed to man wants to die. And we all are going to do that because Adam sinned. I mean, it had to go all the way back to that. And, you know, that sin brought death. And if I had been in the garden instead of Eve, and I've told my children this before, there would be fruit juice running down my mouth because, you know, I can't blame anybody. It's right. just sin. Sin brought death into the world, and we all get to experience that. And to step back and see the bigger picture. And this life is full of misery. This slice of mortal life is just a lot of misery. And that's even in the scriptures. You know, there's no promises to get out of suffering. But we are told that the memories of this suffering and death will completely disappear when we are held next to that glory that's to come, when we see from immortality, from eternity. Yeah. What a, what a wonderful day that will be. Yes. Yes. <laughs> when all of that is redeemed. Right. That's, that is just something to, to really be looking forward to. So after Jeremiah uh, was stillborn, it was just about five months later, if I remember correctly from your book, you were expecting again yes. <laughs> to even more mixed reviews from your friends and family. Yes. Uh, so talk about what happened with this pregnancy and how it felt to hold your baby girl. Okay. Well, yes. When I, something, one thing that happened through all of this is I 
got to the point where I did not care what anyone thought. Yeah. And, and that was a big change. And so I just, well, I, I briefed my sister. I said, I'm going to make an announcement <laughs> at Sunday dinner, and I want you to start cheering. You, <laughs> you, you just act like you start throwing confetti and just, she said, all right, I've got it. I've got my part. And so we made this announcement. We are expecting again. And she started cheering. <laughs> and everyone, that kind of cut through the ice. And it was like, okay, at least it wasn't silent. At least right. it wasn't silent. What a great plan. Yes. Yeah, you got to pave the way with these yeah. things. But yeah. um, so I announced it at ladies auxiliary meeting and it was quiet, you know, and one lady said, well, I just don't know what to say. Because these people had gone with me through the valley mm, of the shadow yeah. of death, all of my church family and my my real you know biological family and all of the friends, and so I felt almost like I had dragged them through the pit with me, and so I could understand their hesitancy, you know, their cautions, and and just I think I you know they probably were traumatized, you know, to a degree. And so I can understand that, but I just reminded them of, you know, God has a plan. I'm just following it and I'm just being his sheep and I'm letting him be my shepherd. And, uh, and I tell this to people and not to condemn anything, but I say we were Baptist <laughs> and, and this was a foreign concept really uh-huh. to, to pretty much everybody there, you know, to just let God determine your family size. And it, we didn't grow up with this. And, and it was just something that God gave both of me and my husband at kind of the same time. And so I'm glad it was agreed, you know, and um, we just thought we gave this to God at the beginning of our marriage and now, because these, you know, bad things had happened, we were we free now to say, okay, now, God, we don't trust you anymore, and we're going to take this back into our own hands and do what we want to do about it. And we did not feel that that was the right course of action for us, not to say what anybody else should do, but that we wanted to continue, and no matter what happened— keep trusting. And that's where the book, the title of the book came from was Desperate Trust, because it's when your life is depending on it, it's desperate. (laughs) You are, you're there, you're desperate trust. Yeah. So your baby girl was born healthy Mm -hmm. and uh, her name is Jubilee. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I assume that comes from the year of Jubilee. Yes. And, Uh um, and, yeah, the year of Jubilee celebration and restoration. And that's what, you know, she lives up to that name. Just amazingly so, just really effervescent and bubbly. Ever since she was born, she's been a joy giver. Yeah. Wow. What a blessing. You did lose one more baby early in pregnancy, and that was after Jubilee. Um, would you like to share just a little bit about Jordan? Sure. So after when... I guess she was, Jubilee was like 15 months old and I was expecting again. And that was a shock because for some reason in my mind, I thought, well, Jubilee was just this grand finale and, you know, that's how the Lord was going to wrap this up and we would come out on top. And uh, I just thought, well, that was that. And so I was really surprised 
to find out we were expecting again. Yeah. Well, and I have to ask, how old are you now when you're having, when you're expecting again? Uh, I thought I was 42 when Jubilee was born. And okay. so that would have been like 43 or 44. Yeah. Wow. Something like that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, I'm about yeah, to see why you were surprised. To, <laughs> yes, yes, uh, yes. And so we, again, I said, let's wait. I told the kids, let's wait till I'm three months along before we tell anyone. They wanted to tell their friends. By now, they're older, you know, teenagers, and they have friends here and there. And But I had a little meeting around the dining room table, and I, I brought out a china plate and a paper plate. And I said, but this was before I told them about the baby. I said, now, which one of these is more special. Well, obviously the China one. And I said, but which one's easier? Oh, the paper one. You can just throw it away. And I said, so which one takes more work to maintain? Oh, the China one. You have to hand wash that. You can't just stick it in the dishwasher. And um, which one's more valuable? Well, the China. And I said, I said, God is going to entrust us with a piece of China that's going to take some work on everyone's part because I knew my pregnancies were, they were not easy. I would be, I'd be lying around a lot and everyone was going to get to pitch in and help. And I said, we're, we're expecting another piece of China. And so they got on board, but I said, just wait three months. And uh, right at that moment, at the three month mark is when I saw the signs that we were losing the baby. And I made an appointment to go get an ultrasound. And while I was in the waiting room, I I usually carry a little Bible in my purse, or a little Bible promise book. And and so I, I said, Lord, I've got to have a verse. I've got to have a promise. And that I had actually given it away. And I forgot that I'd given away my Bible promise book. But instead, I had a little booklet in there that was it told the commands of Christ. And if you go through the New Testament, there's 50 things that Jesus said to do or not to do. And so I thought, I don't want a command. I want a promise. And I kept digging and I never found anything else. So I just opened this commands of Christ booklet. And the the one I opened up to said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves Break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I said, I read that and I thought, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. I'm laying up treasures in heaven. Even if these pregnancies don't come to fruition, I don't bring home a baby. I am laying up treasures in heaven. There will be a row. (laughs) I will have a welcoming committee when I get there. There will be, I am laying up treasures. I'm populating the shores of heaven. And if that's what God wants to do with my body, then okay. And it was just, just, you know, just, I just needed that. Every, everywhere I turn, God is there and he has a word. He has a verse. He has a comfort. Even though you do walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you walk through it, but he's with you. Mm. Amen. That's a good word. That's what a perfect promise slash command for you to find uh, at that very moment. That's, that's amazing. You know, I felt like it was really important for us to talk about all three of your babies in heaven because it seems to me, again, that's not my story, but it seems to me like society in general 
doesn't place as much value on this type of loss. And I just want to affirm the immense value of each one of your baby's lives. And to me, it's a blessing to hear the emotion in your voice as you shared their stories. I'm not sure exactly how many years it's been since you started laying up those treasures in heaven, but it's clear that they still are having an impact on your life today. And like you said, what a wonderful welcoming committee Mm -hmm. you'll have when you get to heaven. Well, I was surprised when I was reviewing for this interview at how much pain is still there, you know, the emotion yeah. that's still there. And it has been my young, well, Jubilee is 16. So around that many years ago. And when I revisit it, it's like, wow, wow, that was, that was deep and heavy. And that was uh, rough, but you know, God was there. And yeah. I think that's what he's showing me now, even mm. not, not to get ahead of the story, but that his faithfulness is just in being there. Just in being there, that's faithful. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. This concludes the first half of my conversation with Kim Allison. Remember in today's introduction, I said she has five children on the ground and four in heaven? Next week, she'll be sharing the story of her son, Timothy, who went to heaven a little over a year and a half ago at the age of 28. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to sharing the rest of our chat with you next Wednesday.